Have you ever wondered why exactly it is that things usually sound better at home than they do on stage, in auditions, or even in lessons? It's easy to chalk it up to nerves or assume that you just have to practice more or get more performance experience. And sure, those things certainly are part of the puzzle, but a lot of times that's not really the true root cause. If you've been confused by the inconsistency of your performances, I put together a free four-minute quiz called the Mental Skills Audit, which will help you pinpoint your mental strengths and weaknesses and figure out what exactly to adjust and tweak in your preparation for more consistently optimal performances. You can take the Mental Skills Audit online at bulletproofmusician.com MSA. That's MSA for Mental Skills Audit. And again, it's 100% free, and it'll take just four minutes to get your results emailed to you as a PDF. This is Noah Kageyama, and you're listening to the Bulletproof Musician Podcast. Every Sunday morning, we'll take a look at a new research-based tip or technique to help you practice more effectively or perform better under pressure. And on the first Sunday of every month, I'll have a guest from the music, sport, or research world who will share their insights on how we can all be a little more awesome in the practice room and on stage. It's been said that we must learn to walk before we can run. And I'm guessing there's probably a lot of truth to this. But have you ever noticed that getting better at walking doesn't necessarily help you get better at running? Because while walking and sprinting both involve using your legs to move forward in space, the biomechanics of each are quite different. And no matter how awesome you may be at walking, so long as one of your feet remains in contact with the ground at all times, your top speed is going to be severely constrained. It's only when you allow both feet to leave the ground for a moment and go from walking to running to sprinting that you begin to see how much faster you can move. A similar thing can happen in music too. For instance, have you ever encountered a speed plateau in a piece you're working on? A section that you can play perfectly at about 80 or 90% of the final tempo, but no matter how hard you try, you keep hitting a wall and can't seem to get over the hump? This can be super frustrating and make you wonder if you just don't have it in you to make your muscles move quickly enough. But there are some indications that the problem isn't necessarily one of talent or natural ability that the bigger problem may be related to how you're approaching this tricky passage during the learning process, where you may inadvertently be trying to get better at walking instead of trying to get better at sprinting. And what does that mean exactly? Well, back in the 1950s, a psychologist named Paul Fitz wrote an influential paper about the relationship between speed and accuracy, namely, that there seemed to be a proportional relationship between the two. Want to move faster? No problem, but your movements will be less accurate. Want to be more accurate? Okay, but you will need to sacrifice speed. This trade-off between speed and accuracy makes intuitive sense and also reflects the experience we have when learning something new or technically challenging. I mean, when was the last time you tried learning a big concerto at the marked tempo from day one? Sure, we might be able to play parts of it at tempo, but with the more challenging parts, the typical plan of attack is to set our metronome at a tempo at which we can play the notes accurately and gradually work things up one or two notches at a time, in essence, to prioritize accuracy over speed. This makes a lot of sense because when we repeatedly slop through a passage at a too fast tempo, we run the risk of developing all sorts of bad habits that we'll eventually have to unlearn. 
But going back to the walking versus running analogy, is it possible that we could be developing bad habits by trying to learn a tricky passage too slowly as well? Most of the early studies looked at the speed accuracy trade-off using contrived lab-friendly skills, like finger tapping or wrist rotation, that were easy to study and measure, but don't look anything like actual sports skills, which are generally more complex and take longer to master. So some researchers decided to see if the speed accuracy trade-off held true in the real world, with skills like serving in tennis or batting in t-ball. And as suspected, real-world skills seem to operate differently, and in many cases the researchers found that accuracy didn't suffer as much as expected, even as speed increased. Hmm, so could emphasizing speed in the early stages of learning actually be a good thing, heretical though it may seem at first? Well, let's take a closer look. So in one 1997 study, a team of researchers recruited 16 children aged 6 through 11 to learn some basic hockey skills. The kids were randomly assigned to two different groups and given some basic instructions on how to hold a hockey stick and how to stand. Then they were placed 25 feet away from the gym wall and instructed to hit a street hockey ball at the wall, but each group had a slightly different objective. One group hit against a wall which had a vertical line of masking tape placed on the wall. This was their target, which they were instructed to aim for. After each shot, they were given their accuracy score and encouraged to improve the score on the next shot. This was the accuracy group. The other group of kids was simply asked to shoot the ball as hard as they could. Their wall was totally bare with no target to aim for, so they basically couldn't miss. They just had to hit the ball against the wall with maximum velocity. These kids also received feedback after each shot, but theirs was given in miles per hour. The speed of their shot is measured by a radar gun. After each shot, they were encouraged to shoot even harder. This was the speed group. Over the course of two days, both groups improved. The accuracy group improved their accuracy scores by about 34%. And the speed group improved their speed scores, going from about 18 miles per hour to 21 miles per hour, an increase of about 16%. Neither of which is especially surprising, of course. And then day three happened. On day three, everyone was tested on both speed and accuracy. Unlike the previous day's tests, where each group was asked to focus on either speed or accuracy, this time, both groups were being scored on their ability to shoot as accurately and as fast as possible. They were told that one wasn't more important than the other, and that they both mattered equally. As you can imagine, the speed group hit the ball significantly faster than the accuracy group, more than twice as fast, in fact, at about 22 miles per hour versus a little over 10 miles per hour. And when it came to accuracy, the groups were actually no different. If anything, the speed group was even more accurate than the accuracy group, with an average score of about 57 centimeters away from the target versus 66 centimeters away from the target, although this difference wasn't statistically significant. So in other words, after the same exact amount of practice, the group which was instructed to focus on speed and where accuracy was de-emphasized ended up performing substantially better than the group whose initial focus was on maximizing accuracy. How can that be? Well, the researchers note that even over a very brief two-day period of practice, the two groups developed very different shot mechanics. The accuracy group seemed to shoot with a tighter, more constrained set of motions. Their shot loosely resembled a putting stroke in golf. 
The speed group, on the other hand, swung much more freely, with a longer backswing and follow-through, a much more efficient and effective motion which was a closer approximation of what the shot should actually look like. In other words, the stroke mechanics that were developed to maximize accuracy worked okay for accurate shooting, but the same movements were no longer effective when speed was also important. Conversely, the mechanics that were developed to maximize speed not only worked well for maximizing speed, but were much more easily adapted to successfully account for accuracy too when that became an important factor. Another study, conducted over a six-week period with 10- and 11-year-old fast-pitch softball players, reported similar findings. And in a way, their findings were even more compelling. As in the hockey study, they found that instructions which emphasized accuracy led to the girls throwing more slowly than those whose instructions emphasized throwing faster. So then they took away the accuracy criteria, just emphasized speed, and the girls did begin to throw faster. However, a certain amount of damage had already been done to their learning. Specifically, the excessive focus on accuracy in the early stages led to the development of poor throwing mechanics, which ended up impeding their overall development. These results suggest that in the early stages of learning a skill, emphasizing accuracy can absolutely lead to more accurate results in the short term, but this may come at the expense of long-term development, which actually makes a lot of sense. Because whether you play the harp, guitar, piano, or harmonica, when you play a passage slowly, the efficiency of your motor movements doesn't matter so much. You can still play pretty accurately, even if you're doing things with your hands or fingers or arms or embouchure that won't work at faster tempos. Maybe that means you are using excessive finger pressure or lifting your fingers higher than necessary. But either way, you may be developing slow habits, if you will, that will hold you back as you begin to increase the speed. Habits and mechanics that will eventually have to be discarded or unlearned in favor of more efficient and speed-friendly mechanics which do work at the final tempo. But only engaging in fast practice and missing all the notes can't possibly build great habits either, right? Indeed, being able to play something super fast is great, but not if it all sounds like a big mess. So what are we to do? Well, there are a few approaches that I've heard musicians describe over the years, but there are two in particular that might be fun to experiment with. The first is an approach that is sometimes called rhythm or dotted rhythm practice or note grouping practice, where the idea is to alternate between fast notes and slow notes. Nathan Cole, the first associate concertmaster of the Los Angeles Philharmonic, has put together a great video on how to do this, which you can see at bulletproofmusician.com slash fast practice. But here's a quick clip. For example, let's take uh, something from the Tchaikovsky Concerto, some of these really fast scales and slurred passages that we've all practiced slowly. At a certain point, once you become a, a grown-up, you decide you've got to work on that in some kind of organized way, and so you, you practice it slowly, focusing on your shifts, focusing on the sound, and probably at some point you even graduate to uh, working it up with the metronome, right? Put the metronome on slow, a little faster, a little faster, a little faster. And what I always found is that at a certain point, once I get about 75, 80, maybe even 90% of the way there to the tempo that I want, it just doesn't want to get any faster. I think the reason for that is that when you're practicing it slow, all too often you're building in slow habits. Everything from the physical way that the fingers go down to the mental processes that direct those fingers, it's all stuck. And uh, so it can be very hard to break out of that rut. So. 
what you need is a hybrid approach, something that lets you practice speed, but at a slow tempo. So how do you do that? And my favorite method is by grouping notes. When you play a group of notes, you want to play each group as fast as you possibly can. You may even fool yourself into playing it faster than you thought you could. But you can take time between the groups. So if we take this uh, little scale again... If I'm going to start with the simplest groups, it's going to be groups of two. And by the way, when whatever kind of practice I'm doing, I want my best sound. Uh, that's a mistake I see too often, people using a practice sound when they practice. Use your best sound. So now groups of two, if I'm going to start on that B, So I'm grouping notes by twos, and you may notice that that sounds a lot like dotted rhythms. A lot of times I'll talk about dotted rhythm practice, or uh, you may have heard other teachers talk about that. And all that really is is a group of two notes um, pausing in between the groups. So again, if I'm going to start on that B, and instead of playing the long note first, play the short note first. So now I'm playing a group of two notes, fast as I can, taking time in between the groups. So I get that fast practice, but my brain has a chance to recover. Now this is important. When you're doing these groups, it's important to truly think of, in this case, the two fingers or the two notes as a group or as a unit. And this is something that uh, can trip you up because if you're just playing dotted rhythms or trying to play a couple of fast notes, you're going to get stuck again. So instead of thinking second finger, third finger, two, three, two, three, I'm going to really think of them as a unit. Um, so the two fingers are almost going to go down at the same time, very lightly, very easily. So now it's not two motions, but it's one. So when I play it, I'm almost not going to hear that second finger. Hopefully that gives you a taste of what this particular strategy is about. Of course, there are lots of nuances and important details, and you can get all of that in this 11-minute video at bulletproofmusician.com slash fastpractice. As Nathan explains, this is a hybrid approach to getting a tricky passage up to tempo. There's also a non-hybrid approach that involves playing a passage at the goal tempo from the very beginning but by building it up one note at a time, instead of trying to play the whole passage through at once. For this, I wanted to share a short clip from a video that trombonist Jason Sullivan put together, whose background in motor learning enables him to explain not just how to do this, but also the underlying rationale for why this works. One of the more common ways to do that would be to slow the metronome down to a point where one can play it successfully, and then slowly kicking up the metronome and developing the ability to play it. And that would be a way to make sure that you're getting all of the articulations you want, uh, making sure that the pitch is where it needs to be, and that you have a consistent style of play. I disagree with this being a, a good methodology to use because I do think it has limitations and diminishing returns. I think there's a faster way to get the results. In embodied cognitive science, or in basic motor learning motor control, we have to coordinate motor patterns at a faster tempo. 
By slowing the metronome down, we might actually be changing the kinematics of what we're doing. We might actually be using different amounts of force production and ratios of muscular engagement in each individual movement of a key or a slide or a valve, whatever, what have you. And then when we speed up the tempos, we might find that what worked at those slower tempos is no longer going to be acceptable because we just can't get the job done quickly enough. So by slowing the metronome down, we open up all sorts of possibilities to kind of let these other ways creep in that we're eventually going to have to fix. And that can be a frustrating process. This has its own level of frustrations, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through and demonstrate how I would practice this. Now, rather than slowing the tempo down, first thing I'm going to do is something called forwards chaining. And that's where I start at the front of the lick, and I'm just going to add one note at a time. We've got 125 beats a minute going here, so I'm going to start at the beginning, one note, and just keep adding. So you can see that there are times where I add a new note and the previous notes kind of have a decrement in performance quality. That's because we're trying to chunk it together as one continuous idea. I don't want to consciously have to think about each note, so that means that the motor patterns are starting to get grouped together, the synaptic connections are starting to happen through regions of my brain that can handle this faster tempo. This also means that it's frustrating in that it doesn't sound good until it sounds good. You don't have that small steps of quasi-gratification by being able to nail it at 60, then nail it at 61, then nail it at 62. Here, it's just gonna sound bad until you get it. For all the nuances and details of this strategy, as well as a podcast episode that Jason did where he goes into all sorts of details on the different types of chaining that are possible, you can find all of this at bulletproofmusician.com slash fastpractice. And if you are intrigued by these strategies and think they might help you get past your latest speed plateau, please do share the episode with a practice buddy who might be a fun partner to try these out with in the weeks ahead. <laughs>